You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. All right, so today we're going to talk about authority. The natural makeup and demographic of this church is probably somewhat calloused to the idea of authority and potentially for valid reasons. During COVID, authority was at an all-time low, and it has only gone downhill. Um, Can institutions be trusted, or is there an alternative motive at play? Can the government be trusted, or are they hiding something? Can church leaders be trusted, or are pastors merely trying to keep their jobs at whatever cost? It's all a question of trust in authority. So the question I have is, who would you say has authority in your life, really? There are probably some things that have authority in your life, like laws that you choose to abide by, but what people have authority in your life? Many of us have seen authority abused. Many have seen it exploited. Many have seen it leveraged for more money. Most of all, many of you have been privy to authority that has promised integrity and left you really wanting. There is plenty of authority that we would deem as negative and unhealthy, but it's the authority that promised care and love and and attention, particularly in God's name, that leaves us disillusioned with the question, can anyone in a position of authority be trusted? And I'm going to be just very honest with you. This passage, 1 Peter 5, was a very difficult passage to prepare for and even more difficult to deliver in this moment because much of this passage is referencing my position as an elder in this body. So I just want to submit to you that that is not lost on me. So whatever I say that is of the Spirit of Christ, I pray it plants a seed deep within you and whatever is not of the Spirit of Christ, I pray it is thrown out. So I think it's really important to address what Peter is addressing in this text, and those are the elders of the early church. So we're going to do that. But for the majority of you, this passage is not necessarily going to feel like it has direct application in your life, though it is equally important because so much of what Peter addresses here can be applied in leadership in general, not to merely church leaders. The principle of the matter has great impact on your life. So I don't want you to zone out quite yet. So it says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So let's just be reminded for a minute about who Peter actually is. He was an uneducated fisherman who was bordering on a religious extremism, uh, i.e. becoming a religious terrorist. Uh, Jesus personally walked into this man's life, and he calls him to follow him, makes him a leader of the 12 disciples, He was the first to understand and say out loud that Jesus is the Messiah, the hope of Israel. He's the one who tried walking on water. And he was one of the few who was at the transfiguration where he literally saw in vision Moses, Elijah, and the glorified Christ. He was there when Jesus literally raised people from the dead. He saw Jesus cast out 6,000 demons as if it was nothing. 
Peter loved Jesus so much that during his arrest, he cut a man's ear off trying to protect his master. But this great leader, a few hours later, would not dare defend Jesus. In fact, disowned him, rejected him, and actually blasphemed him. And after Jesus rises from the dead, he personally meets with Peter, restores him, and makes him the primary leader of what we now call the church. He preached the first sermon, was the first to formally include non-Jews in the church. He was set free by an angel while in prison. He was rebuked publicly by political leaders and told to be quiet for speaking the name of Jesus. He was at the critical moments of great revival in Acts 2 and in Acts 4. And the church tradition tells us that he would take the message of Jesus all the way to Rome and then be crucified upside down because he did not want to die in the same way as the one he loved so much. But if you know your Bible, you know that Peter was not at the crucifixion. There's no record of him coming to the aid of Jesus. So what is Peter referring to when he calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ? Well, think of another leader of the church, Paul. When Paul, who was complicit in the murder of Stephen and other martyrs of the early church, and is on his way to Damascus, and is confronted by the risen Jesus himself, do you remember what Jesus says to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, Peter had experienced pushback and threats between Pentecost and this letter that's circulating around the churches. And so when Peter was being persecuted, Jesus was being persecuted. And when Paul was murdering believers, he was murdering Jesus. Every single time a follower of Jesus suffers at the hands of others, Jesus himself suffers with you. When someone attacks a follower of Jesus, they are attacking the living God, Lord of heaven and earth, found in Jesus. This whole letter that Peter has written is based on hope in the risen Christ amidst a world that is about to consume him. Right? This letter is on the precipice of Nero's reign where he would literally light his castle with the bodies of Christians. And Peter is saying, I've been there. The world outside is about to burn up against you, so let me give you some final exhortations. Do not eat one another up, but rather offer an alternative story. And there's an exhortation to the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. I want to hone in on the word shepherd. By the lake of Galilee, before Jesus restored Peter, before he commissioned Peter out, he asked him a very simple yet undeniably difficult question, especially for Peter, since the last time he saw him would have been minutes before denying he ever knew him. The question Jesus asked is, do you love me? And that question is the underlying question of all of ministry. Because our answer to that question can actually lead us to a place of both complete irrelevancy and complete security. There is nothing to prove and there is nothing to gain. Because Jesus is the goal, relevancy becomes a silly aspiration and insecurity bleeds away because that's what unconditional love does. The love of pastors and shepherds for their flock will be proportional to their love for Jesus. Now I realize I'm leaving myself very open in this moment, but uh, my sincere prayer 
is that my love for Jesus and my devotion to Jesus and the elders' love for Jesus and their devotion to Jesus is felt and experienced by you. If we are not hungering after Jesus and if we are not reorienting our priorities around his, if we begin to lead in a very different manner than his character, then something is wrong. We don't live in a world of shepherds, but the analogy is used so often in the scriptures because the setting of shepherds and sheep was common. And Jesus then tells Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep and tend to them. In essence, Jesus asked Peter to come alongside him in one of the main metaphors he gives himself, a shepherd. In one of the most famous passages in John, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. No one had more authority on earth than Jesus and no one loved the Father more intimately than Jesus and it was out of that complete security he is willingly, he is able to willingly give up his life. An elder's responsibility must be to emulate the shepherd. Authority is about love more than it's about anything else. Nothing about Jesus' life or lifestyle is about gaining control or attempting to win power. And so much of how we envision authority is about enlisting control. Besides the Bible, this little book right here has been such a helpful companion to me over the last five years. I read it every summer. It has to win the award for the world's worst book cover. Paired with some of the best insights. Uh, it is called In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Leadership by Henry Nowen. And I have this paragraph in my notes on my phone. This is what it says. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. Jesus asked, do you love me? And we ask, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? Ever since the snake said, the day you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God's, knowing good from evil. We have been tempted to replace love with power. Jesus lived that temptation in the most agonizing way from the desert to the cross. The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. Those who resisted this temptation to the end and thereby give us hope are the true saints. One thing is clear to me. The temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. Much of Christian leadership is exercised by people who do not know how to develop healthy, intimate relationships and have opted for power and control instead. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. And I would add, namely, that many ministry leaders have been people unable to give and receive love first and foremost from God. The call of an elder is the call of a Christian. 
It's to embrace the wholehearted love of Jesus for you and to extend the love back to him and to others. The only distinction most of the time between an elder and a non-elder is that an elder has been someone who has exemplified the call of receiving and giving love in tangible, visible ways for extended lengths of time. And so to these elders, Peter gives three warnings alongside three exhortations. He first says to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. If we see our ministry as a have to, we are in trouble. Obligation is not part of ministry. There is a holy hunger to dwell in the presence of God, to see others dwell in that same presence, and to see a city reborn and renewed by the blood of the Lamb. This does not mean there won't be challenging days or particularly challenging seasons, but the motivation for leading people in the church must be one of desire. You have to want to. Second, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And if we see our ministry as a means to money, influence, fame, increased reputation, buzz around the city, then we have an issue. And it truly does not matter if you are a megachurch pastor or a pastor the size of this church. All those things are real temptations. And to lead the people of God with the bedrock of motivation being motivated by money, influence, and reputation, or I think the subtle temptation is a temptation of self-importance. I will become a leader in the church because I will justify my existence. As if becoming a pastor will make you more important. That will lead to a shipwrecked faith. And then he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So I want to give a word on leadership, and I want to end our time talking about control. Good leadership primarily models Poor leadership primarily tells. And the exhortation of the pastors and the churches across Asia Minor is not to mirror the tactics of the Roman Empire in leadership. Do not dominate, exemplify, model, lead by example. My hope and prayer sincerely is that you do not take what you hear up here at face value. I want you to do the work yourselves. I want to equip you to do the work so that when you hear what I say and then you watch how I live, you can say, yes, I will follow Wes because Wes is following Jesus. Or no, here's where I don't hear Wes following Jesus and thus where I won't follow him. There is a watching by example and listening to what Jesus is saying through prayer, through scripture, and through one another. And if the example that elders are exhibiting or the words that we are saying are not trustworthy or they're not matching with the life and lifestyle of Jesus, I welcome feedback. Leaders are not above criticism and pushback. They cannot be. Having said that, let me also say this. And I want to say this to us because this church in many ways, at least by way of model, is unique. Particularly unique to our context in our city. Not unique in what we believe necessarily, or even in some ways how we live, but certainly how we organize. It's easy to want to look at other churches and other places or other leaders who are leading various types and sizes of churches and put them on blast. Whether with close friends or just in your own heart. But let me just give a brief word of caution and say do not confuse abuse of power, which there is certainly that in the church, and leadership. They are not synonymous. Here is a very helpful definition of leadership. Leadership is saying yes to things and saying no to things. Leadership is sitting in the chair that no one wants 
making the call no one wants to make and living with the consequences of everyone talking about the decision they weren't willing to sit in the chair and make themselves. Pure and simple, that is what leadership is. And church leadership is unique because God's involved. It is easy and comfortable and sometimes red meat to certain circles to clap back at churches that are doing it differently than you, particularly if you are sitting in the cheap seats where you are pretty far away from where the action is. There is a word in the scriptures for that type of posture. It's called scoffing. Looking at someone with contempt, not merely disagreeing with how someone is doing something, but assigning value to them that is beneath you because of that disagreement. Scoffing tends to masquerade as humor. We define a scoff as a mock or a jeer, but scoffing is more clearly defined by the emotion that it seeks to evoke. Rather than aiming at love or joy, scoffing shoots for sadness, heartache, and anger. It reduces someone to a punchline. It exhorts laughter from unkindness. Exclusion is scoffing's aim. We are not like them. Each of us, by the way, is susceptible to dishonoring speech, and the sin of scoffing affects us all. We may have fallen into it in adolescence, but it doesn't require the breeding ground of high school insecurity for it to seep into adult conversation. Scoffing is, scoffing is often crafty and sophisticated, and it subtly entices us. And I think we as a church must be vigilant when it comes to looking at ourselves in light of other churches. Now, so much of leadership, both inside and outside the church, is about power, position, and pride. And underneath, we have a word for that, and that is called control. And it's tricky in the church because it can be so easily cloaked in Christian language. You can lead out in a lot of ways and call it God's will while just needing control. The temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. We are all control freaks. And so much of what we do and don't do is based out of the fear of how much control we're going to lose if said thing does or does not come to pass. Control means I predict outcomes, I make rules, and I am pleased with the results. Control doesn't merely mean that people do what I want, but that people are there for me to use, to manipulate, and to coerce. Control is the opposite of feeding and tending the flock. It's taking and drawing from the flock because, again, control is about me. The church feeds me, validates me, affirms me. The church is really ultimately about me. And when fear is the motivation, control is the inevitable outcome. And Jesus says a lot of sobering words to Peter, but the most sobering and the most haunting are the ones he says after he encourages him to feed his sheep. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And after saying this, he said, follow me. What is the message of the world? When you were young, you were dependent and could not go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you'll be able to make your own decisions, go your own way and control your own destiny. It sounds promising and it sounds somewhat accurate. But Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. And if there is a definition of Jesus-loving leadership, whether in ministry or elsewhere, it is that. Jesus has a different vision of ministry for you. 
It is the ability and willingness to be led where we would rather not go. Some of you, even right now, are being led where you would rather not go, and you are doing everything you can to get Jesus to change the direction. For some of you, that's a journey toward more more holistic health. For others of you, that's relational repair. For some, that's finally getting honest with a few people of where you are really at. And for others, that's just a walk across the street to a neighbor that isn't your favorite. And for some, it's just returning back to the heart of Jesus that is waiting on you. And you're just sitting here thinking, I do not have the energy for that. Nothing about that journey is remotely enticing to me. I hear you. I totally hear you. Jesus is always taking us to places where we would rather not go. A few years back before this had ever really formed, and before most people were actually part of this initiative, I remember praying about what I wanted this church to look like, dreams I had for this church, ambitions I wanted to see fulfilled, and very vividly I sensed a different question coming to the surface. I need to ask Jesus what he is not calling me to, who I'm not going to be, and what I'm not going to lead. That was an unbelievably dangerous question because so much of what I wanted for ministry was modeled on ideas that I had seen, people I had met, pastors I had admired, lifestyles I wanted to model, and none of that was bad, but not all of that was for me, and not all of that was for this. And even just over the last two years, there's been an ongoing fight between me and God on releasing my grip on this church. I want so badly for this to succeed. I want for this to flourish, for people to get set free, for people to experience the love of God, for people to come into further relationship with God, for people to find God in the mundane and in the extraordinary and supernatural. I want more people to be baptized. I want this neighborhood to be impacted. I want the scriptures to come alive for folks as they find themselves in the story. I want marriages strengthened, kids discipled, and those on the outside welcomed in, and those on the inside called out and up further and further. I want all of that, and most days I still pray for that. But I am slowly being convinced through much pride and much difficulty and much soul-searching that this is Jesus' church. It's not mine. This is Jesus' mission. It's not mine. And I am living in Jesus' world. Not mine. And so whenever I get the itch to snatch back a level of control or at least a semblance of it, the Holy Spirit sometimes gently, sometimes strongly gives me one, sometimes two, or occasionally three responses. Hey, slow down. Hey, calm down. Hey, sit down. Translation, you're going too fast. You need to chill. We need to talk. And almost every time I get really honest before the Lord, this is the scripture he brings me back to. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Did you know there are only a few times where the term pastor or shepherd is used as a noun to describe the office of someone in the church? It's used in Ephesians 4 when Paul says that the church has been given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors or shepherds and teachers. It's also used here in 1 Peter to pastor or to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then it says, and when the chief pastor appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But all throughout the Gospels, every time 
The word shepherd is used. It's the same word in Greek as pastor, and it refers to Jesus. The job of a pastor is to guard and guide, similar to a parent, where the primary role of a parent is to lead and protect and nurture and feed a child. That's what the job of a pastor is for adults in spiritual language, to lead and guide and direct and feed and nurture, in essence, to grow people up into maturity, which is why I find it both so helpful and so freeing to just meditate for a moment on the fact that Jesus is your pastor. Jesus is our pastor. And the moment Jesus stops pastoring this church is the moment the doors of this church close. And so I want to end with this prayer. In Dallas Willard's book, Life Without Lack, he riffs on Psalm 23. And I read this on Thursday, and it was just a real balm to my soul. So if you would just take kind of a posture of prayer as I read this. The Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I'm in the care of someone else. I'm not the one in charge. I've taken my kingdom and surrendered it to the kingdom of God. I am living the with God life. The Lord is my shepherd. And what follows from that? I shall not want. That's the natural result. I shall not lack anything. That's what Jesus teaches. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. What kind of sheep lies down in a green pasture? A sheep that has eaten its fill. If a sheep is in a green pasture and she's not full, she'll be eating, not lying down. He leads me beside the still waters. A sheep that is being led beside still water is a sheep that is not thirsty. Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He restores my soul. The broken depths of my soul are healed and reintegrated in a life in union with God, the eternal kind of life. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. The effect of the restoration of my soul is that I walk in paths of righteousness on his behalf as a natural expression of my renewed inner nature. And as I walk these paths, my trust in the shepherd runs so deep that I can declare, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. A life without lack is one that carries no fear of evil. Our confidence in God soars far above wants and fears. Would you like to have a life without fear, a life of soaring faith? It seems like Jesus was constantly saying to his friends, fear not, fear not. Imagine what that would be like. No fear of life, aging or death, disease or hunger. No fear of any person or creature, not even the loss of all your possessions. You can live without fear, even in the midst of a world dominated by fear. While the psalmist clearly knows about life's dangers, he can still say, I will fear no evil. Why? 
for you are with me. The central truth is that the complete sufficiency of the life without lack is based upon the presence of God. And he is most clearly and fully present to us in Jesus, God with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I know from experience that the rod and staff represent the shepherd's strength and protective care. In this safe place where I have no fear, I am at liberty to enjoy the overwhelming generosity of my shepherd. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Since I love my enemies, I would not feast upon a delicious meal in their presence and let them stand there hungry. The abundance of God's provision and safety in my life is so great, I would invite them to enjoy what God has prepared for me. And you anoint my head with oil. Here you might think in terms of hot showers and warm towels, things that make us feel clean, comfortable, and special, and how God makes that possible. He is not only interested in my having something wonderful to eat, but also in blessing me with a life that is full and free and powerful in Him, including clothing, furnishings, joyful experiences, and deep relationships. So much so that the abundance of God's provision rings out from the psalmist's pen, my cup is full. Wait. Is that what it says? No, it says my cup runs over. I have more than my cup will hold. So much that I can be as generous as my shepherd without fear of ever running out. So much so that I am convinced surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a description of the eternal life available to us now in the kingdom of heaven. The abundant with God life that comes from following the shepherd where we dwell and abide with God in the fullness of life. A life in which all the promises of Christ's gospel are realized. Because of this, we have no reason to be anxious. The world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. I know that doesn't always feel true. It doesn't always feel true to me. But if feeling true, but it feeling true and it being true are not always the same thing. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And the invitation is to just humbly surrender to his loving embrace. And whether you find yourself in vocational ministry leadership, work leadership, parenting, or being a child, Jesus is pursuing you, he's asking you, and he's leading you sometimes to places you would rather not Go, but the shepherd never ever leaves you. Let's pray. So we don't normally do this, but I, I sense the spirit might have something to say to us. So I'm just going to have John come up and, and lead for a minute, and I'm just going to lead us through a series of questions. And I want to use the frame that Jesus took with Peter that he desires, I think, to take with us. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And many of us might need to be reminded today of Jesus' first love to us before we even remotely give a response to him. Do you know that Jesus does indeed love you?
The second question is, where is, he, where is he leading you where there is resistance in your own heart? Like where you would rather not go. And you have no idea what is on the other side of the answer to that question. The external consequences were both wildly and terrifying for Peter. He led the Christian movement and he was brutally murdered. The internal consequences were unbelievably vital. So much freedom. Unashamed, unpolished, but full of weighty conviction and supernatural power. Where might he be leading you where you would rather not go? And I just want to say this. Um, this is in Hebrews 3.15. There's just this great line where it says, the Holy Spirit says today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's referencing Moses <laughs> and the Israelites in the wilderness, where they heard God's voice over and over again, and they just repeatedly refused to surrender to the protective care of God. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Holy Spirit. Come and meet us where our hearts are most tender. That is where you love us the deepest. And for most of us, if not all of us in this room, it might be leading us to a place we'd rather not go. Thank you that your love covers us even when we sometimes spurn it. You have made a promise to us that you will never leave us, ever. And so we are holding tightly to that promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.